Well, good evening, everybody. So we had that lovely practice of, in our Plum Village tradition of bowing to our ancestors as a preparation for tonight's talk. It's one of my favorites. It always invites me to let go of something I'm holding about my ancestors, some difficulty, some uh, stuckness that I'm holding. So I'm really grateful for that practice. So tonight I want to talk about honoring our ancestors. So we have all these holidays about our ancestors. In fact, when I was thinking about it, it seems like almost every single one of our holidays in some way is about our ancestors. We have Veterans Day, we have Memorial Day, we have Thanksgiving, we have Christmas. The, now these are all um, ancestor honoring things. And they come with uh, our ancestors' stories of accomplishment and bravery and sacrifice and love. I've always been mostly interested in the untold stories about our ancestors. You know, we know these, these famous names and, and what they're supposed to have done, but I want to know about the simple people that are our ancestors that have done um, beautiful things in the world, but we'll never know their names. But, you know, who knows what's really true about what we hear about our ancestors? Who knows? So I'm interested in exploring our ancestors, and I was recalling today as I was thinking about giving this talk, my son, when he was three years old, I was talking about ancestors. And he says, I don't want to learn about my ancestors. I want to learn about my and brothers. So I thought that was kind of a cute uh, three-year-old hearing of the word ancestors. <clears throat> because he's a brother. He wants to hear about his and brothers. So who are our ancestors, after all? So I want to talk about two different kinds here. I want to talk about our physical ancestors, and then I want to talk about our continuation ancestors. So I'll start with the physical ancestors because that's what we think about mostly when we think about who our ancestors are. I have this idea that I've inherited from our culture that I can distinguish my ancestors, my physical ancestors, from your physical ancestors. Well, my parents are my parents, your parents are your parents, but that starts to break down after we go out very many generations. Yeah, we don't have the same parents, but go out a few generations, it's not so clear that you and I are different. So think about a pyramid um, starting from our very first ancestor. You know an ancestry chart, it's like a pyramid. You've got the old, gen old generation, then it goes to the children, the grandchildren, out like this. And uh, apparently scientists have figured out that we all came from the same tribe in Africa, and even more, from the same mother. There is some prototypical mother that we all descend from in, in some African tribe that we all descend from. So, you know, when I think about that picture, I think about, yeah, okay, way back in history, here was my one maternal ancestor, my one paternal ancestor and we descend from all of those. I, I can kind of get my mind around that. But what happens if we start working from ourselves and go backwards? So start with me and then go to my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents. Well, that gets even harder to track because if you take that route and start from you and you go backwards 20 generations, 
which is about 500 years, that would mean you are related to more than one million people. At that 20th generation, there'd be 1,048,576 relatives. But go, go double that, go back 40 generations, a thousand years. If every one of us had separate relatives, each one of us would have 1.1 trillion relatives. Well, that's way more people than have ever lived on the earth. And that's only 40 generations. So there's no way that you and I can have separate ancestors, separate physical ancestors. We are all completely interrelated. But our bodies are more than just our inherited bloodlines. Our bodies are made up of non-body elements. So our bodies are made up of water, of minerals, of food, of sunshine. They're made up of all the things that we don't think of as us. And those things have been cycling through us and through our ancestors for eternity. So we actually are made up of the same physical elements that made up dinosaurs and made up supernovas and everything else in the universe. On top of that, no physical element stays in us more than seven years. So our, our, complete, our bodies are completely changed within seven years. So this thing we think of as me and the ancestors I think of as mine and separate from you, it just doesn't make any sense if you look at the actual science of things. That's actually, I think, good news. It breaks down um, a barrier of ignorance that allows me to separate myself from you. There was a story I used to love when I studied philosophy in college. It's called the, 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 the Paradox of Theseus's Ship. So Theseus st sets off sailing in a ship. And on this long journey, bit by bit of the ship is replaced. A mast here, a gunnel there, until every single bit of the ship has been replaced. So the question in the philosophy class was, was it the same ship that he got back home with, that he started out with, or not? And to me, as a philosophy student, I thought, though well, the question misses the point. Maybe what it's pointing at is, is that our whole idea of what makes up an identity is wrong. Because, you know, one side would argue, yes, it's exactly the same ship. The other one argued, would, no, it's not the same ship. And then the ones that would argue the same ship, then the other people would say, well, what if they took all the parts they took off and they assembled them all back together and now there's two thesis ships? You know, so it's just one of those philosophical things that, you know, it's, I, I, I tired of philosophy after a while because of those kinds of things. But I, I, I thought that was kind of pointed towards um, our, our wrong ideas about who our ancestors are. Okay, so that's the physical ancestors. Um, I think more interesting probably are our continuation ancestors. Now this is not something we've inherited from our way of thinking in the world, but this comes to us from our Buddhist practice. So what are these continuation ancestors? So our thoughts and our speech and our actions continue on 
longer than our bodies continue on. You know, if you take a pebble and you throw it into a still pond, bloop, the pebble will very quickly sink to the bottom. But the ripples from the pebble striking the water will radiate out. They will bounce off of objects and off the shoreline. They'll come back in. They'll, co they'll connect with each other. They'll make more complex patterns. They'll continue to radiate for a long time. And that's like our thoughts and our speech and our action. The mouth that says the word won't last very long, but the word may ripple out like that rock landing in the pond for a very, very long time. Generations. So we continue much longer than our physical body continues because our actions, our thoughts, our words continue. It's kind of like thinking about when we look up into the sky and we see a star. That star may have extinguished millions and millions, hundreds of millions of years ago, but we're seeing its ripples, its light waves coming to us. The star is gone, but its effects continue. So we're like that. So when we look back at our continuation ancestors, we can see that they're still giving themselves to us now. I can see this in my own family. My great-grandmother, my mother's mother's mother, was an immigrant from Sweden. And they homesteaded a farm at the south end of Lake Sammamish. And by all accounts, I've never, never met her. She died in 1942. Uh, she was a really lovely and wonderful person, kind, supportive. And I can really trace her kindness through my family to me. I can feel her kindness in me. I, I know that she is still continuing in me. I never knew her. I don't know what she looks like. I've seen pictures, but I can feel her continuation in me. And I hope to continue her continuation so that others can, can feel it as well. So there's ripples from so many of our continuation ancestors, you know, from our Zen ancestors, from our land ancestors, the very, the very ancestors we looked at in this, uh, in this practice tonight. Those are continuing in us. But, you know, we, we don't have to die to continue in that way. We are making ripples now. We continue in our parents and in our children and in our communities in each other, in the Sangha, we are actively continuing. We do it while we're alive. The question isn't really if we are continuing. The question is, how are we continuing? Are we putting out ripples of beauty and love and kindness and support in the world? Or are we transmitting unhealthy continuations? And for the, for the continuations that we've received from our ancestors, are we transforming them 
with our lives and our practice so that we don't pass on the unhealthy continuations that we've received? Or are we blindly passing them on to others through our anger, through our unskillfulness? So these are things that we, um, we can hold in our practice and wonder about and notice in our behavior, for instance. Ah, what continuation am I creating right now with my thoughts and my speech and my action? So not everything that our ancestors did is laudable. You know, our ancestors were human beings, and human beings make mistakes. Human beings suffer and are overcome with ignorance. Human beings lash out and create difficulties. And our ancestors are no different. We are no different. Our culture is at a moment where it's re-examining the ancestor stories we've been telling ourselves. So this is a wonderful time to be thinking about our ancestors and to be thinking about the mistakes our ancestors have made and how we might transform those mistakes so that we don't pass them on to the next generations. So we can honor our ancestors but honoring them does not mean that we pass along their mistakes. The best way to make sure we don't pass on our ancestors' mistakes is to forgive them. When we forgive them, we're much less likely to pass along their unhealthy ripples. So this is counterintuitive because right now a lot of what we're doing in our culture is we're looking at what our ancestors have done wrong and we're condemning them. But what that does is that that makes their energy even more powerful in our hearts, makes us more resistive, makes us more angry, and we're more likely to pass them on that way. So I think forgiveness is really the wiser path to take here so that we can transform what we've been given rather than resist what we've been given. So how do we do this? So I have, I have four steps that I'd like to suggest that we can do to practice forgiveness for our ancestors so that we don't pass along their unskillfulness. The first thing to do is understand what I mean by the word forgiveness. Because there's a lot of wrong ideas about what forgiveness is. By forgiveness, I am not meaning that we excuse or deny or condone unhelpful behavior. I do not mean that. We need to see unskillful behavior for what it is. But true forgiveness is that is healing the, that behavior's results in this present moment. So we have, a, we have an ancestor that has behaved unskillfully, has held slaves, has oppressed people, has exploited the environment, all the many things that our ancestors have done. So to really forgive them, that means we don't look back and say, what you did's okay. No, it wasn't okay. 
but what we can do is heal the results of their behavior in this moment as it manifests in us, as it manifests in our culture. That's what real forgiveness is. So it takes the second step in order to forgive. First, we have to see clearly what is happening. We probably won't ever see clearly what happened in the past. We won't know what was in people's hearts. We won't know exactly what they did. We can have some pretty good ideas and we can hear stories, but we don't really know what's true and what's not true. But that doesn't mean we can't know what to do. What we can know is the residual suffering that exists in us now. We can know that. We can see, for instance, the, the horrible effects of racial oppression in ourselves now, in this moment, we don't have to look back to slaveholders in 1820 to know that. We can know that by looking in our own hearts. So that's where we can look. That's where we can see that the suffering is. And once we see that, the next step is that we can allow it to be here. So much of what keeps us from forgiving and transforming is that we can't allow the uncomfortable feelings that we have. When we think about, about racial oppression as a white person, it feels overwhelmingly guilt-inducing to me, shameful, terrible regrets, embarrassed about my ancestors that they've done this. This is just one example. And when that shame and those feelings come up, I want to bypass them. I want to ignore them and pretend they aren't there. But we have to have the courage to be with those feelings. If we can't be with them, we can't transform them. So we do that by creating spaces in which we can hold them individual spaces and collective spaces. So our individual spaces might be our meditation practice, our walking in nature practice, our retreats, our readings. But also it's really important that we come together as a sangha and come together as communities to hold this together. We got into this together and we need to get out of this together. It's too much for any one of us to take on by ourselves. So we see clearly, we allow the pain that we see to be present. And then the last step is to respond with compassion. When we can allow that pain to be present in us, we know with our own experience what that pain does to us how it shuts us down, how it robs us of joy, how it robs us of connections with other people, how it gives us shame, grief. So when we respond with compassion, we make a resolution. I will not pass this along. 
I will not pass this along. We resolve to respond with a practice that can hold it and transform it so that we do not pass this along. I found for myself that I have to find a balance here. I have to find a balance between allowing my pain and wallowing in my pain. Right? I've got to, I can't I can't go so deep into it all the time that I feel like I'm overwhelmed by it. I have to find this balance. I have to allow it, be present with it, but not wallow in it. I'm at that point right now with my relationship with the news. You know, I enjoy reading the New York Times and I enjoy reading other news sources. I'm having to take a break. I can't read one more article about how broken things are right now. I'm, I'm overwhelmed by it. So I'm trying to restore a little bit of balance here. You know, I need to know what's going on, but I can't be overwhelmed and wallow in it. The other thing that helps me respond with compassion is to recognize that suffering is universal. It has been ever thus, and it will be ever thus for people. You know, it's easy for us to look back and say, you know, especially around, around racial issues, because that's so alive for us right now, to look back and, and say, how could our ancestors have done that? How could they have been slaveholders? How could they have oppressed and dominated and reduced a whole group of people like that? What were they thinking? Well, you know, I kind of suspect that in the future, they're going to look back at us and say, what did they do to the environment? How could they have been so selfish that they drove those individual cars and filled the atmosphere up with CO2? And look what we have to transform now. What were those people thinking? So I don't think we're any different than the people in the past. We have to forgive ourselves as we're forgiving our ancestors. We're just doing the same things. Suffering is universal. So touching this universality of suffering helps me really drop my judgment, my perfectionism, my expectations of what the perfect society will be. I don't know that this will ever be achieved because we're human beings. But I can come back to how I'm experiencing what I've inherited from my ancestors now in this moment, to see it clearly, to allow the pain to be here, and then to respond with compassionate action. Those things I can do. But to set up some sort of a utopia that we need to reach before I feel satisfied, um, I don't think that that's going to be too helpful for me. So, our ancestors are everyone and everything. Nothing left out. When we see that, we can honor all of our ancestors, forgive all of our ancestors, and have compassion for all of our ancestors. 
no exceptions. And that's what I wanted to say about ancestors. Let's end with a, two sounds of the bell. <laughs>